friends, brothers, really, who are at war and a father who just wants them to be reconciled to one another. Can there be any more of a Christian message than that? that those movies are the reason why I signed up for karate back in 1985. And uh, I was 12 years old. It was a few years later till my moment came on the school bus, the, the, the hell mouth of the universe where all evil is spawned forth. Um, so I was sitting in front of Bill and Bill was one of those genetic examples of genetic unfairness. I mean, we were both sophomores in high school, but he's already bulging with muscles. And I don't know what I said, but uh, he reached out and took me by the shirt collar. We had a move in karate for people that take you by the shirt collar. And it kicked right in. I grabbed his hand, I rolled his, I cranked down that wrist lock. He yelped out in pain. I said, leave me alone. Got off the bus. Yes. <laughs> You're the best around. No one's gonna ever. So a week later, I was at the karate school. I was teaching somebody, and uh, the little bell on the front door rings, and I, I look up, and who's walking in off the street? But Bill, the school bus bully, at the karate school. I'm the only instructor on the floor, so I have to deal with this. So I came up and said, can I help you? And he said, that thing you did to my wrist, I want to learn how you did it. I'm signing up for class. I don't own the school, so I don't have the authority to say, no, you're not. But I do teach all the new students. Now I'm going to be asked to teach my own enemy the move I used to escape from his grasp. Can I do this? Can I sell weapons to the enemy? That was a long time ago. That, that's kid stuff. Do you have an enemy? I mean, they probably don't shirt collar you anymore, but they're probably always there to say something nasty when you're vulnerable. They're always there to have a smart comment after everything you say, after everything you post, they have to chime in. You know, they're always there to make you look bad, always there to contradict, always there to shame, always there to make things difficult, always there to start an argument. Do you have an enemy? Is your enemy in the church? Does your enemy bow before the same cross and call themselves Christian? That's the worst. That's the worst. How's that, how's that sit? We're in Luke chapter 4. Jesus has uh, been traveling around. He's been doing some miracles. He's getting popular. He's come back to his hometown in Galilee. We're in verse 22. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. And by amazed, they don't mean like, that's cool. They mean like, what's that? That kind of amazed. It says, how can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's kid? How's he, all this. Then Jesus said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did at Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now, had Jesus stopped right there, somebody probably would have roughed up his hair and said, oh, you angsty kid, 
you're a prophet, okay. But he didn't stop there. He had to tell them exactly why he couldn't do a miracle there in that town. And it had more to do with something festering in their heart. He says, certainly there are many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, meaning that it didn't rain. And the severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. He just tells them all these stories about, oh yeah, there's prophets that you guys couldn't listen to before because they had messages you didn't like. They had ministries to other people that you consider enemies. They healed foreigners. And, and, uh, and what he's basically telling them is the reason why I don't do miracles here is because God would rather heal a Phoenician widow or, or a Syrian general than you. That, that Naaman he quotes, that was the enemy I was a general of an enemy army in the Old Testament that the prophet Elisha healed. This is not going to go over well. Verse 29. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, there's not a Bible scholar who writes on this that can tell you how that happened, how he wormed his way through a crowd that was trying to push him over a cliff, except to say it just wasn't his time. It just wasn't his day. So in God's will, it didn't happen. Now, understand, in not so very long from this time, there's going to be another mob who starts out thinking he's all right, and then he says stuff like this that they don't like, and when they gather around, they nail him to the cross. So his day does come. It's just not this day. But what happens after that cross? After the resurrection, after Easter morning, what happens? All sorts of enemies of Israel begin to follow God. After the resurrection, Greeks start becoming Christian. Arabs start becoming Christian. Romans start becoming Christian. Egyptians start becoming Christian. By the year 300, Christianity is the majority religion in all the lands that used to be Israel's arch enemy. That just reads like the Old Testament enemy list. And and in a, a few hundred years after Jesus, the majority faith in those parts of the world is in Christ Jesus. This is God's story. This has always been God's story, that he is reaching out to do a work in the lives of all sorts of people, including people that we don't always like, including people that that we hate. This has been God's story since the very beginning when he favored the second-born Abel over the first-born Cain. Back then, the firstborns just got everything. And God starts out at the very beginning and says, not all the time. I really love the underdog. I really do. And once you know God's story, then we're supposed to look at our own story 
And we're supposed to ask, am I living on the right side of this story? So that the prophet can come into my hometown and do a miracle in my life. So let's go back to that enemy. Because this is what it means to let Jesus come into your hometown and do a miracle for you. It's about what's between you and your enemy. So if Jesus were right here this morning, standing in front of you, and he said, I want to use your life to do a miracle for that person or those people that you hate. I'll get to you later. But right now, I want to do a miracle for them, and I want to do it through you. Would you take him out to the edge of town and push him off a cliff? Or would you say, all right, come on out onto the floor and I'll teach you the very thing that set me free from you a week ago. So there Bill and I were on the dojang floor and that move is one of the first ones you learned. So he's like, oh, here it is. <laughs> yeah. God was doing something else. There's a lot more going on on that floor. So I wasn't Christian and Bill was not Christian. Now I was raised Christian, but I was real wishy-washy, on and off, distracted, just exactly what you'd expect from some high school sophomores. Bill, I don't think, was raised in it at all. So there we were. So I looked up Bill as part of a little where are they now before I preach this message. And he owns his own business. And on his website, he has his Christian testimony. And it talks about how uh, he became Christian in a, in a church meeting on a Wednesday night in December of 1989. That's about one year after our little bus incident. I wasn't Christian by 89. For, for me, it took another five years of in and out and up and down and lukewarm to cold somewhere in there. It was, wasn't until May of 1994 that I went kind of full throttle with Jesus. So my enemy became a follower of God five years before I did. This is God's story. This is what God does. So here during the season of Lent, perhaps it is time to think about forgiveness. Perhaps it is time to think about letting go. It's only holding you captive anyway. It's only creating this wall where Jesus can't come to your hometown to do a miracle because you don't want to hear what the prophet has to say next. Perhaps it's time to reach out. Make a phone call. Write a card. Have a lunch. Even though the devil's whispering right now, that won't work. That won't make any difference. That will probably just make it worse. That's not what it's about. Jesus didn't go to the cross because it fixed everything and now everybody follows God and understands. He went to the cross because it was the right thing that God wanted to do to show his love. And some follow and some don't. It's not about whether it works or not. It's about obeying what God wants to do to show his love. 
even to your enemy. Even Mr. Miyagi knew, for man with no forgiveness in heart, living worse punishment than death. And we learned that when Jesus told us to pray every week. Forgive us our trespasses just as we forgive those who trespass against us. Gonna live forever knowing together that we did it all for the... There it is. You guys are fantastic. Let's pray. Father, as we fast this week for Lent, may it be a reminder to us that we may have some business unattended to. Lord, help us to, by the power of your spirit, because we don't want to do this. We don't know this is a good idea. Help us by the power of the spirit to put ourselves in that place where you can come into our hometown and do your next miracle with us. Lord, help us not to plant our flag here and say, I'm not going any further with you. Lord, give us the courage to go all the way. It is in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.